only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan. Good evening to you after another great weekend at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Anytime you are at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in the month of May and the sun is out and cars are on track, it is indeed a good weekend. And that's exactly what this past weekend was with the GMR Grand Prix of Indianapolis. Congratulations to Renus VK on his win. Jake Query here along with Mike Thompson. This is Beyond the Bricks. And Mike, we'll begin with this before we get to the topic of discussion for today. Um, You know, this is one of those things that almost was a statistic that was so obvious that I had to double and triple check myself to make sure that I was correct in saying it. But it dawned on me on my drive home that we got to see on Saturday... The youngest ever winner of an IndyCar sanctioned race at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Yeah, I mean, when you're so young that you don't even get to do anything with champagne, right? Do you have, what was the sparkling grape juice right. or something they yep. handed him? Something like that. But yeah, I mean, Renus, uh, you know, he's a, he's a young guy, but he's a talented guy. And, and you know, he's he's one of those guys who could break Troy Rutman's record. We, we, we talked about that before, that Troy Rutman's record could be potentially in jeopardy. And, and I brought up Renus as... I mean, he's even younger than Colton Hurd is. Yeah, and Pato Award also has a chance yeah. to break that record, and he, you know, he's realistic. So, as we transition now from road course to oval, you know, it's going to be pretty exciting to see what happens here over the course of the next couple of weeks because you have, obviously, you know, Scott Dixon is always. I mean, there, Scott Dixon, Mike, to me is interesting because you think about the number of years that it seemed a foregone conclusion that Dixon would get his second win <laughs> every it year didn't happen every year right well, I'm on the pre-race show I was on the pre-race show with Tony Katz and, and JMB and I think I picked Scott Dixon almost every yeah. year because you that's what you do right correct and every year I think oh well okay it's gonna be Scott Dixon this year it's and gonna then, be- so now that everybody's thinking like well maybe that's just not gonna happen because look at all these young guys this would be the year where he sneaks up and oh, gets it right? right exactly this will be this will be the year he gets his but second man, I'll one. tell you what I mean you're gonna have potentially if you know, and should they all qualify, you could have up of to nine former winners in the field. And then in addition to that, in terms of drivers that would be looking for their first win, you know, Arenas VK, Colton Herta, Pata Award, Graham Rahal, Joseph Newgarden. I mean, the list is pretty darn stout in terms of the competitive nature of the 500. Absolutely, but has has anybody had a more interesting few weeks uh, than Renus VK at one track? I'm just trying to think. I mean, you know, a couple of weeks ago he's here. They haven't even barely turned the green light on, and he's in the fence yep. with a hard crash. I mean, that was that wasn't like a basically just you know scuffing with an injury. Sure. Yeah, I mean, injured his hand, injured his finger, but that that was a pretty hard accident he had. Puts him out for the rest of the test, um, and then he's back and he wins. You know, the Grand Prix. I mean, so. But but Renus is just a delightful guy, isn't he? I mean, he is. Was there what you know? What an interesting podium! I mean, with 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 what happened with Roman, um, and I loved. I don't know about you, but I loved that interview Kevin Lee did with with uh, with Groshan, where Grosjean? where the where the fans were cheering him, and yep. I loved how Kevin you know did that 
brief pause and was, these cheers are for you. And 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 he just soaked it in and, and kind of realized that all these people are cheering. I love moments like that. Yeah, he you know, Ramon Grosjean, I didn't know not I did not know a lot about him personally when he came over from Formula One. And it's disingenuous to say that I do now. It's not like we're going out and hanging out, but really nice guy. And I think Mike you know, there is always the stigma when guys come over from Formula One, Alexander Rossi comes to mind, that people assume that the driver themselves feel that they are too good to be here or this is a step down, et cetera. And so that stigma becomes, well, he's just arrogant. He's not. Grosjean, from the time he's gotten here, give him credit. I mean, he has said, hey, listen, this is – I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah. I love the competitive nature of it. I met him briefly in Gasoline Alley over the weekend. He couldn't have been any nicer, was friendly, was just engaging, was uh, super good with the fans. I just – like I said, I love that interview Kevin did. I love – and I love when fans, you know, when they gravitate towards somebody like that where, I mean, obviously, you know, he's overcome so much – and they, you know, they just give it, you know, the, the fans are so good here. You know, I mean, like, look at look, the way they respond to Tony Kanaan. I just love. I love how they just they want to tear the place down for Tony Kanaan. Oh, if you have an appreciation for this place yeah. and you have a zest to win, you're going to be loved, right? Yep, absolutely. And here's my favorite thing about Ramon Grosjean outside the race car that I find fascinating. When they had the IndyCar content day, as it's now called, which is basically media day, I went for the radio network purpose just to record different things with the different drivers. So he walks in, and I made mention to him, oh, you know, the last vacation that I took before COVID and, you know, the world shut down, I went to France. He is, of course, a French national. And I'm expecting him to say, oh, what part? You know, I grew up in such and such. I didn't know, Mike, he's never actually lived in France. He's a French citizen. But he explained to me, and I don't know the nuances of, of the French-Swiss reciprocity of nationality and et cetera, but his mother, his mother is French and then moved to Switzerland where she met his father. And then when he was born, he was born in Switzerland, but because he was born to a French national, his mother was given the option of either get herself renouncing French citizenship and becoming a Swiss citizen or basically deferring or transferring that citizenship to her child. And she opted for her son to be a French citizen as opposed to herself. So when she changed to Swiss citizenship. So he is a French citizen, although never having lived in Switzerland, uh, never having lived in France, excuse me, and lived in Geneva, Switzerland. That is interesting. Which is pretty interesting, Yeah, that right? is interesting. Um, but you mentioned Renus VK, and Renus VK caught the eye of Ari Leindijk, who has been very supportive of him over the course of his driving career and bringing him here to IndyCar and to the Indy 500. And today on this program on Beyond the Bricks, as we talk about the history of the Indianapolis 500, we're going to talk about another driver who also caught the eye of not necessarily completely his elder, but a competitor or a driver who had won the Indianapolis 500 before him. And then he hitched his wagon to him and said, you know what, let's see what we can do. And lo and behold, he breaks through and gets his first win. And I'm talking about Al Unser. Uh, there's, I mean, Al Unser is a guy I think we could do multiple shows on. I mean, I, I find Al Unser fascinating. Uh, one of the absolute all-time greats. I think it goes without saying. And I think... Is it possible underrated? I, I don't know how you feel about that, but I would agree with that. I, I think 
you know, and I think maybe we're going to have a, a, a clip, a sound clip uh, from another four-time winner later on that I think is going to kind of back me up on this a little bit. But I think he's a little bit underrated because, I mean, you think of the four-time winners. I mean, AJ takes a lot of the oxygen out of the room because, I mean, AJ is AJ, right? I mean, you know, he's the king of the mountain, um, you know, obviously one of the greats in, in, in any form of racing all time. Um, you know, Rocket Rick, one of the more recent guys who's so a little bit more uh, you know, in the, I think in the in the eye of of some people and and memory of some folks, and I think Al's kind of in the middle where I don't want to say he's underappreciated. That's not the right word, but maybe just a little underrated. And I think if you stack careers of the three solely at Indianapolis, I think you could make a case that Al Unser had a better career than any of the four time winners at Indianapolis. I would agree with that. When people talk about the greatest of all time at Indy. I, I think it's Al Unser. That's my personal opinion. I can't. Here's the thing, Mike. If you were, you know, Rick Mears is hard to argue, but Rick Mears also had really good equipment and and consistent equipment during the course of which he ran. And you knew that Rick Mears was going to be able to take care of a race car and be there in the end. If you if you knew, if someone said to you, we are going to present a car to enter in the Indy 500 and you get to pick one driver to drive that car and qualify it and run the race, but we're not going to tell you whether or not it's a really good car. Like, if you knew it was a car that didn't need a lot of engineering insight, and but it was really fast, you'd say, okay, I'm going to put Gordon Johncock in it because he's fearless, or Tom Sneba. If you knew that it was a car that needed really good feedback in terms of the you know, the, the engineering mind of it. Maybe you put a Mark Donahue in it. If you didn't know anything about the car itself and all you knew is that you needed to pick a driver, your odds are best probably with Al Unser because whether he is driving a crap wagon or a rocket ship, he's going to find a way to get to the front. Yeah, I mean, think about the fact that Al Unser, and here's what I think about Al Unser. I look at, you know, there's, you know, Bill James, the, the great baseball mind, you know, he has all these different formulas for baseball and there's peak there's peak value, there's career value, there's all these different values, and I use a lot of those things when I'm talking about the Hall of Fame, and maybe one night we'll talk about the Hall of Fame. You know, I, I use some of those things in those discussions, but when you're talking about peak value, you know, Big Al won two in a row. When you're talking about career value, Big Al at the end of his career in 1992 was a threat to potentially win the race, finished third, was the only guy to ever finish with the Buick, finished third in that race to his son and, and Scott Goodyear. And then he comes back the next year and leads 15 laps again the next year in his final race at the Speedway. So it's not like he's not one of those guys that, I mean, where whereas a, a guy like Richard Petty, who I love Richard Petty, but, I mean, Richard Petty won his last race in 1984, and then basically he didn't have a lot of success after that in NASCAR. Al Unser, he was still competitive in the Indianapolis 500 after winning – his fourth 500 and and could have potentially won in 92 led laps again in 93 all-time lap leader at the indianapolis 500 most top three finishes in the indianapolis 500 in history nobody has more than he has so i think there's a case that you could make that al unser is the greatest indianapolis 500 driver of all time al unser made his debut in indianapolis in 1965 he started the race in the 32nd position. So he starts all the way back 
in row number 11. Now, incidentally, he never finished the race any lower than 27th. So Al Unser starts towards the back, um, but finishes in ninth. Gets a top 10 running in his first outing. Returns and, in 66, 67, and 68. But we should talk about that 65 situation for just a second. He was with another team. He took his rookie test. He was uh, in the Arciero brothers' car. It looked like he was not going to make the race. And he talks pretty openly about the fact that he basically thought, you know, my chances are done, and I'm going to be out. And if you miss the race in your rookie year – people are maybe not as likely to give you another chance the next year because you came to Indianapolis and you didn't make it your first year. So what happens? He's he's in Gasoline Alley and he's kind of a little bit down thinking, you know, I I'm my chances are done and who walks in the garage and says, "Hey, do you want to drive my my backup car?" but AJ Foyt. AJ Foyt walks in and says, "Hey, I got a car for you. Are you interested?" And if you're interested, you know, come see me in the garage in a little bit. And and Al tells the story I followed him right out of the garage immediately, followed him immediately to his garage, got, you know, got in the car, put it in the show. And and you said, as you said, the rest is history. And with that, you know, A.J. Foyt, obviously, who knew back then that what you were seeing was a future four-time winner uh, giving an opportunity to a future four-time winner, right? The first and the second. Um, and there's a lot to talk about with Al Unser, which we will do. But let's begin by retroactively looking at the man that Mike's talking about in A.J. Foyt and Al Unser. After it was all said and done, here is A.J. Foyt talking about the man who would go on to win it in 70, 71, 78, and 87, Al Unser. Al, to me, was an underrated driver. I think Al was a lot better driver than Bobby and all of them, because Al had a good head on his shoulder. He was very smooth, and he kind of knew what he wanted. And like I said, I felt like he was always underrated myself. I knew he was a great driver, and he was a good driver, and he won Indy four times, which I was glad to see that. But uh, he was a good race driver. Interesting to me, Mike, because one would assume that those two would be bitter rivals of one another, just because of the fact that you know, you're talking about, to an extent, Brady and Manning here, right? I mean, you're talking about Elway and Marino. I mean, two guys who slugged it out over the course of their careers. Two of the biggest names there were, but I think I think part of it is that, you know, Al, his personality is a lot different than AJ's. You know, Al's really low-key. Everything's, you know, Al's word is neat. Everything's neat to Al. And... I don't think Al's one of those guys who was a you know going to grab headlines uh, as far as from a personality standpoint. Al just you know he let his results do the talking for him. So I think it's it's interesting to see the respect though between competitors. I always am really interested. Donald Donald actually got me really into that a few years ago. Donald says you know I'm interested to see where do the competitors rate other competitors, right. and the more. I hear that the more I'm, I'm interested in it. I'm interested, okay, where does Parnelli rate Al Unser? Where does, you know, Mario rate an Al Unser? Those type of things. Because, you know, obviously, you know, you and I can talk about statistics and we can use statistical analysis to say, okay, so-and-so's a better driver than so-and-so. And, uh, you know, we could do that. But, I mean, for me to hear an A.J. Foyt say, I think Al's underrated. Okay, A.J. Foyt's opinion carries a heck of a lot more weight than mine does. Because A.J. Foyt's, you know, 
most likely the greatest IndyCar driver of all time. So what A.J. Foyt has to say has a lot more credibility than, than anything else. You know, what's interesting is you mentioned the word neat. That had to have been a word that was used a lot. I don't know if that's an Albuquerque thing or an Unser family thing, but I'll never forget when Al Unser Sr. won his fourth Indianapolis 500 in 1987. Bobby Unser is on the call for ABC, and they put the headsets in victory lane on Al Unser Sr. so that he could talk to Bobby, and I think that ABC is expecting this tearful, incredible bonding brother moment, and Bobby Unser puts the headsets on, and Al Unser says, yeah, I can hear you, and Bobby Unser says, boy, I got to tell you, that was just really neat. And that was it, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that's Al's that word, really though. Neat. If you spend any time with Al, there's a, there's a lot of different phrases, I, and I know the, the the folks at home will know exactly what I'm talking about. Phrases that you hear the the legendary drivers say. Al's is neat. Richard Petty's is the deal. Richard Petty says the deal in almost every other sentence, and of course AJ's. This is quite true. This is quite true. Which yeah. is one of my favorite things. The first time I ever got to interview AJ one on one, and I asked him a question, and he said to me. Well, this is quite true. I was, I was like, just like welled up inside with pride because I said, I, th- I thought to myself, I'm said, I got AJ. AJ said something I said was quite true. I mean, it, it was like, like a really proud moment for me because I was thinking, you know, this is the guy and this is the man. And AJ just said something I said was quite true. So yeah, it was really neat. When it was really that. neat. By the way, um, when we come back to Beyond the Bricks, talking about Al Unser. And moving into Al Unser getting in one of the legendary cars in the history of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And it was one that allowed him to accumulate two of his first, well, two of his four wins. Half of his wins came in this particular race car in back-to-back years. And it all came about because of Parnelli Jones, George Bignotti, and a sponsorship. We'll explain all of that when we return to Beyond the Bricks. Jake Query, Mike Thompson, back on Beyond the Bricks. How are you on this Monday talking about one of the all-time greats out of Albuquerque, New Mexico? Uh, I don't know. Al Unser, one of the more understated drivers, both verbally and in a race car. And we talked about the fact that Al Unser, when he first came to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, 1965, then again he races in 67, or excuse me, 66, 67, and 68. But... Suddenly now, 1969, Parnelli Jones gets a a partner that decides to buy an existing team with some Lolas, and that includes the chief mechanic and a driver. And what we end up with is a partnership, Mike, that in the early 70s is going to be as big as any in open-wheel racing. Yeah, that partnership really worked out, didn't it? Because um, Parnelli talks about how much respect he had for George Bignani. He had driven a little bit for George Bignani, not in what we know as championship cars, but uh, in other forms of racing. And he had plenty of respect for George Bignani. So he, when he had the opportunity to put this deal together with, with Val Militich and George Bignati and Al, you know, he was, he was pretty excited about this combination, you know, to putting together what we know as Vel's Parnelli, you know, Parnelli Jones racing. And, and they were quick right out of the box. Now, what's interesting about 1969, you mentioned is Al wasn't able to run in the race. Al was here, um, had a good chance to potentially win that race. He was here during the month of May. There are pictures of him, you know, out there during the month of May. But then what happened was he had a motorcycle accident in the Speedway infield during the month of May, broke his leg, 
and had to miss the rest of the ra- uh, re- miss the rest of the month of May, miss the race. So that's the reason why Al doesn't have a consecutive you know streak of years. It, he didn't have an accident on the track. He had an accident on a on a motorcycle doing some I don't want to say wheelies or things like that, but I mean he was just r- riding this motorcycle in the middle of the infield got injured and uh, ended up having to miss the race and so in 1969 bud tinglestead runs the race right finishes finishes, uh 15th in 69 and then in 1970 the the lolas come together and they put together along with george bagnati a, a pair of cars and they initially called them the pj colts right yep they were the colt and so they say here are our cars and of course Mike, as we know from talking about it on Friday, cars are often named or legacies are often created with the car based on the sponsorship. And you will take basically, as we have found when we talked about it on Friday, uh, somebody's going to open up their pocketbook. I mean, if it's Beer Papa's Piping Hot Cream Puffs and they want to fund your racing, guess what? Give me a Piping Hot Cream Puff, right? You're You're taking the money if Beer Papa's calling. (laughs) <laughs> that is exactly right. And so, lo and behold, uh, what better thing to do than to take, like, a toy, paint a car like it, and then you got to hope the driver is on board. Tell me about Johnny Lightning. So, Topper Toys came to Vel Militich, and they, they worked out a deal. Now, what was interesting, when I did, we did this interview that you'll hear in a minute with Al... Al wasn't as very excited about this whole plan as Vel Militich was. Now, Vel, as the car owner, is very excited. He's got a new sponsor for the 1970 season. They're going to debut at Phoenix, coming right out of the gate, beginning of the 1970 season. He's got a brand-new sponsor, right? So he's excited. He's got we got Topper Toys on board. And so you'll hear Al's reaction here in a second to, this, to the news that they've got a brand-new sponsor. And uh, Al, right out of the gate, wasn't as excited about it as we all were, but but it grew on him in the end. This is Al Unser just a little over 50 years ago when finding out that his sponsorship might come with a nickname and some pressure. Here we go. Well, I called Bill in Torrance, California one day. And I says, how's everything going, boss? He says, it's going good. He says, we got a new sponsor. I says, a new sponsor. I says, who is it? Well, he says, Johnny Lightning. I says, Val, don't make a joke out of me. Please. Honest. I mean, really, don't. I don't want to be Johnny Lightning. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a, you know, a kid's toy. You know, he says, well, it is. It is a kid's toy. Oh, Val. Oh, man. I says, they just can't do this. And it turned out we got to Indianapolis, and here comes this car out. Well, we run Phoenix first, but uh, here it was a different car. And it looked pretty. I says, well, one thing about it, it's pretty, you know. And and, uh, I says, but I can't see Johnny Lightning, you know. And it turned out that Topper Toys and Johnny Lightning turned out to be a great sponsor and they really really did i i'd say things that things turned out pretty good right well first of all it is a pretty car it Um, is a pretty car and when we did that interview it was cool because he was actually sitting on the left front tire when we did when we did that interview with him so it was actually a pretty cool um 
situation to to have him telling that story about the livery he wasn't excited about while sitting on the left front tire of one of the most beautiful cars that ever you know turned a wheel at the speedway so that was really a, a neat situation now for those that word. are unfamiliar topper toys came out with a, a brand of Kind of like Hot Wheels, right? I mean, toy cars. They were a rival. Yeah, they were a rival of right. Hot Wheels at the time. And they were looking for a way to get some market share, right? So the way you get in, how how do you do that? Well, you attach yourself to a, a top team that has a chance to win the Indianapolis 500. So the Johnny Lightning 500 uh, set that they put out of cars and, and they had patches. And so they, they included with their cars, uh, they had Alonso or patch that you would get in their, the cars uh, at the time in the blister packs. And so, I mean, it became a big thing. And, and one of the, one of the nice collectibles that you'll, you'll find. In fact, I just, I actually just got one of these about three months ago and I'd never had one, but they had a carrying case um, that was the, the Johnny Lightning special. It was a carrying case, though, for your for your Johnny Lightning cars. And I believe it or not, I finally found one that was in really, really nice condition because most of them, the, the you know, the decals had all fallen off and all this stuff. This one looks like it's from 1970. So I have a kind of a special affinity for that car because it debuted. The first race it debuted was like eight days after I was born. So I have a little bit of affinity for that particular. The Johnny Lightning car, in terms of the toy, was released in 1969. In 1970, in the Johnny Lightning, P.J. Colt Ford, Al Unser, took the pole for Indianapolis at 170, fitting for that year, .221 miles per hour. Then on May 30th, a Saturday, mind you, Al Unser, in the 54th running of the Indianapolis 500, this is how it sounded when Johnny Lightning finished the race in front of everybody else. A handsome man from Albuquerque, the blue number two, and he got quite a hand up here. The crowd rose as one when he came by, and that's a great tribute to a great driver with a great car. And now here is Sid. Al Unser, the checkered flag, the winner of the 1970 Indianapolis 500-mile race. So that's how it sounded when Al Unser won, but of course the question is, what would happen in 1971 because the johnny lightning toy was not designed i don't think by topper to be something that was going to be around forever as a matter of fact probably didn't know it at that time but but already entering the cusp of when they were going to transition to different toys that they were marketing but that's not to say that al unser wouldn't return in 1971 and return in, in terms of that car and do so once again mike with a a really really fast car he had a really fast car, but one of the things he'll tell you uh, about that car was they didn't have the advantage they had in 70. that they did In 71, they didn't have the same advantage they did in 70. 70, they dominated. I mean, they led 190 laps, so basically they were unchallenged. 71, by this point, the McLarens were there with a little bit of an advantage that, you know, Donald talks about a little bit where – the McLarens were allowed to run a de facto wing, which they claimed was an integral part of the bodywork, and that's how they were able to get away with having a a sort of a, a wing on the car at that point. So the McLarens were extremely fast at that at that point, and you know Peter Revson started on the pole, and they're honoring, in fact, that car this year. Uh, Juan Juan Montoya is going to drive a a car with a paint scheme somewhat reminiscent of that of that car mark donahue started in the middle of the front row with another mclaren so al unser will tell you in 1971 they did not have the same advantages and one of the misnomers 
about the 1971 car that Alonso drove is a lot of people think that that's the exact same car he drove in 70 that he drove is the winning car two years in a row. It's the winning paint scheme two years in a row. They were two different cars. So the 1970 winner and the 1971 winner are two different cars. And you can you can see that if you uh, if you go, ever go over there uh, to IMS, you can see that they are two different cars. What, that, what is the in terms of the difference of the two cars again mainly look at the back of the car yeah pj colt lola ford yeah but if you look at the back of the car you can notice there's a there's a definite difference in the back okay um by the by the right the the rear tires you can tell the difference between the two cars Uh, and obviously the number is different and i'm not talking about something like that but you can see the difference in the back of the the rear the by the rear tires but they are two different cars. So it was not as nearly as easy for Al the second time as it was the first time, but but he got the job done. They looked slightly different because they were different. They started in slightly different positions because in 1971, Allenser started fifth. At the end of the race, the results of the 54th Indy 500 and the 55th were the same. This is Allenser 1971. Blue car with a big number one, and he is number one. And now to call the winner for the 24th consecutive time is our chief announcer, the voice of the 500, Sid Collins. And here is Pat Vidan waving the checkered flag for Al Unser, winner of the 1971 Indianapolis 500-mile race. I think this year, regard, give me a driver off the top of your head in this year's race, Mike. Any driver off yeah, the top of my driver. head? Um uh, Pietro Fittipaldi. Pietro Fittipaldi. If Pietro Fittipaldi, who I believe is going to be in car 51, if Pietro Fittipaldi is coming around turn three on the last lap and he's got the lead, I think what I'm going to say is, and here he is, a very happy-looking boy and a good-looking young man in car number 51, and I'll bet somewhere he is, 51, Pietro Fittipaldi. Chris Tenere, to you. Well, you could do that, or you could do what we did in the first week. We, you can bring back Norman Borland from uh, KWIK, <laughs> and you can just and there he is, and there he goes. You Pietro Fittipaldi. Here he comes. There he goes. Yeah, you can Pietro give us one of those. Fittipaldi. There he goes. Uh, all of this was, of course, a marriage, as we talked about, between Al Unser and Parnelli Jones that worked out for Parnelli Jones in his ownership and getting Al Unser well underway now in his on his way, halfway there to becoming a four-time winner. But Parnelli Jones himself who is, you know, obviously the oldest living current winner of the Indianapolis 500, the 1963 winner. Uh, We heard from A.J. Foyt about Al Unser, but let's hear also from Parnelli Jones on what he has to say about the driver from Albuquerque that won for him in 1970 and 1971. Here is Parnelli Jones talking about Al Unser. Well, I think his his patience and his smartness. I mean, he he just knows how to win. I can't say it any better than that. I don't know any race driver ever that knows how to win better than Al Unser. And I, you got to take a little luck too, you know, and uh, he had some of that in a couple of, of one of the races in Indy is, uh, what's his name was leading and killed the engine on his last pit stop. And Al came and won after that. But it's tough to win four or five, it's tough to win one let alone four. And there's not three guys now that's done that, which is Foyt and, of course, Rick Mears, both talented race drivers as well. Parnelli Jones talking about Al Unser, and he referenced there the 1987 Indy 500, the incident that he's talking about, which we will hear and talk more about on Friday, was when Roberto Guerrero on lap 182 in the pits stalled the engine. And I can still hear Jim, you know, or, or actually Bobby Unser. Roberta stalled the engine. And then there comes Al Unser down the straightaway to take the lead. 
in a show car. So plenty to talk about there in terms of Allenser getting his fourth of the four wins. But in terms of driver-owner combination historically, Mike, pretty special when you're talking about those two. No doubt, and and let's remember the fact that in you know obviously he won in 1970 for Parnelli, won in 71 for Parnelli, and then he finished second in 72 for Parnelli. So you can't really do much better than a yeah. one-one-two. I mean, I, now technically on the track in 72 he did not finish second. He was elevated to second after the penalty to Jerry Grant uh, scenario happened, but still in the record books it's a one-one-two, and so in a three-year period that's a that's a pretty stout back-to-back-to-back. Uh, for Al Unser with with Parnelli, and that was of course during the, the era of the so-called super team that they they called them. Uh, it was Big Al, Mario, and Joe Leonard, and Joe Leonard was busy winning the national championship a couple times, and and Mario really had the least success of the three, believe it or not, um, during that era. I mean, Al won the the five hundred obviously twice. Joe Leonard won the national championship twice, and and Mario really didn't have the same success uh, with Bell's Parnelli Jones as he did uh, as the other two did. And you know. Joe Leonard, I think a lot of people, you know, myself, I mean, I wasn't necessarily, you know, I was born in 72, right? So I don't remember seeing Joe Leonard race. But yet, if you want to talk about drivers that that flirted, flirted, flirted with it and were not able to get it done, I, at almost at no fault of theirs, oftentimes, Joe Leonard certainly one of them. Oh, yeah. Joe Leonard, obviously, I mean, he could have, you know, we've talked a little bit about 1968. He certainly could have won 68, had the... Uh, the fuel pump failure not happened near the end of the race. I mean, he had that race basically uh, in hand. That's I mean, the one. I, I I believe that's the year where you know he, he drops out inside of ten laps to go, and I remember seeing video of it, and I'm thinking, you know, this guy's fuel shaft goes out 191 or 192 somewhere in there, and he and he gets out. And I'm thinking, I, I can only imagine in watching the video what was going through that guy's mind, and uh, clearly what went through his mind was he got out and thought, you know what, I need a smoke. And he sat down and just fired up a heater right there on the pit wall. And I think just kind of incredulous of, of what in the world just happened, you know? Yeah, because because it went all all went wrong for that team. People sometimes don't recall that uh, the team car, our Pollard's car, dropped out just a few seconds after that with the exact same problem, you know? So it it all went wrong for that team in just the space of a few seconds with victory basically in hand for the STP team. Uh, the- we've talked about three of the four Allenser wins and mentioning that win in 87, but we didn't mention the fact that there is still one more to talk about, and it happens in the 70s in a very underrated paint scheme for a car, too. A really cool-looking car in 1978. We'll take a look at that as we come back and put a bow tie on it, already heading in between turns three and four on this episode of Beyond the Bricks. 1977, Tom Sneva was the first to eclipse the 200-mile-an-hour mark at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. He received the helmet with 200 silver dollars inside of it for his efforts. And then in 1978, he is the first driver to sit on pole over 200 miles an hour. In 1978, he sat on pole at 202.156 miles an hour. And that was enough to bring home that car second across the yard of bricks because the winner in the first national city travelers checks machine alola cosworth of al unser and i think a super cool looking car just that that blue and red to me car was really cool looking great looking car and and a lot of people uh sometimes confuse it because it came out of jim hall's you know chaparral racing people think it's a chaparral it actually is a lola 
And the that year, you would think with those two, right? I mean, uh, Allenser starts the race fifth, but you've got Tom Sneva on the pole. But it was actually Danny Ungais that comes out of the box and, and is the, the flying Hawaiian is flying early. Yeah, and that was one of the cars that he really had to uh, to battle in that race. Uh, but it, it's just it, it's just an interesting. It's an interesting car, and I know we're going to get to a, a soundbite. We'll we'll hear from uh, Al in a minute, and I, so I don't really want to steal too much of his thunder. But uh, Al had a really interesting, um, I don't want to say love-hate relationship with this car, but I, I think that's basically going to sum up the relationship he had with this particular car. And before we get to that, it's interesting because the front row that year, you got Angaius, Sneva, and Mears. And when I think of those three, you know, Mears, we talked about the fact that just really smart in saving his cars – Sneva and Angaius are two guys that I think about. When you think about those two on the front row, you wanted to get your tickets for that race, Mike, because with those two on the front row, it's like holy cow, man! Oh yeah, those are those are the Chargers. Those <laughs> are the mean, Chargers. I mean, and and Angaius, I mean, that was one of his best chances, basically. Oh I yeah, mean, he, you know, I mean, he led a lot of laps in that race, and that was really one of his best chances to win the 500. Was that year in, in 1978? He led 71 laps. Did Danny Angaius in that race? Angaius again, starting in the front row, led four different times for 71 laps before an engine went out for him on lap 145. But in the end, it was Al Unser who got win number three in his illustrious Indy 500 career. It happened on May 28th. It's the 62nd running of the Indy 500. Doing a fantastic job is Al Unser. The checkered flag is waved. His hand is in the air. Al Unser, the winner of the 1978 500-mile race. Paul Page on the call for the IMS Radio Network. Sid Collins was on the call for the previous two races that you heard. That would have been the second race in which Paul Page was the anchor for the IMS Radio Network. But uh, once again, I think now we're starting to see, Mike, not to say that he didn't have a, a darn good car in 78, but the reputation I think now is starting to become for Al Unser at this point by the mid to late 70s 70 and 71 you know he had a darn fast car not to say he didn't in 78 but he didn't have the fastest car so the tactician I think is starting to show himself yeah two of the greatest tacticians I think that we've ever seen Al Unser's one and I think Rick Mears is the other I I honestly think Rick Mears is underrated as a tactician I think we're going to actually hear in a in a later show you and I have talked about uh, I've got an incredible soundbite where Rick Mears talks about the 90 the 1991 race where he breaks down the strategy and it's just it's just amazing the tactician that he is. So I, I agree with you. I think I think Al Unser as a tactician is is highly underrated. Now part of being a tactician is the ability to get into a car and bring it home cleanly and safely and to the best spot that you can, even when maybe that car isn't necessarily 100% to your liking. So you slip into a pair of shoes that isn't the most comfortable, yet you're still able to go out and run the marathon. And, oh, by the way, just happened to win the biggest ones. Here's Al Unser on what I'm talking about. And I went with Jim Hall, and we got to the speedway with a new Lola that that we thought would be the terrific car of the times. And it must have been good enough because I won the race. But uh, that car and I did not get along. Uh, Other than the three 500s, I never 
really was competitive at other races, any of the other races across the, the country that year in 78. But yet the 500-mile races uh, between Jim Hall and the people that we had, Huey Absalom and everybody, we made it happen. And uh, that was the three most important races, yes. But yet you want to be competitive and the chance to win the other on the mile tracks, too. And, and we just we were not there. You know, I didn't necessarily like riding Secretariat, but uh, fortunately it was a horse that knew how to win at Churchill Downs, the Preakness, and the Belmont, right? Yeah, when I did that interview with, with Big Al a few years ago, and he and he told me that, I was just shocked. And he, he came out and he's like, yeah, I really had a – Kind of love hate relationship with that car. Really wasn't good anywhere else, but you know, you know, we're we're all right in the three biggest races of the year. I was like, I was like, yeah, you you won, you won Ontario, you won Indianapolis, you won Pocono. That's that's pretty good, I think. Right, that's a good year. But but you know, that's the competitor though in Alonso, right? You know, we you know for a lot of guys, being the only Triple Crown winner, you know, you you'd think. Well, that's good enough for me that year. I I hang my hat on that. I would say, you know, we had a great year, but for Al Unser, well, I'd like to be competitive on the mile tracks. I'd like to be competitive at Trenton or Texas World Speedway or you know, they weren't. And so Al's they're they're trying to figure out how do we get more competitive at these places too. And and so for Al, looking at it, yeah, of course he had a great year and he's thrilled to be the 500 winner and thrilled to be the Triple Crown winner, but he's thinking how how are we going to be more competitive somewhere else and what's interesting mike look i've been and I, i've been fortunate enough to have called races at different tracks you know i've been to pocono several times and and done the two-seater at pocono and i realized that they are both super speedways but of course pocono three turns not four but nonetheless they are totally different racetracks oh yeah so you've got to have kind of two you don't necessarily have to have two different cars but you got to have a driver that knows how to drive in two different ways. Yeah, two different, completely different setups, two completely different, yeah, I mean, ways about going about things. And, and it's just interesting that Al, you know, they knew they had they knew they had the right team together. They knew they had the right personnel together. They were just saying, you know, how come we cannot figure this particular car out on the, on the mile circuits and things like that? But I just love the competitive nature. I just love the fact that that's what they were trying to figure out. You know, one of the all-time greats, no question about it. And what a family and what a legacy for the Unsers. I mean, not only Al, not only obviously Bobby. Yeah, we didn't even touch Al. on, and we didn't even touch on the fact that you know Big Al, you know, beating his son in to win the championship and you know things like that right. in '85, filling in for Rick Mears and injured Rick Mears. I mean, you know, we could do a whole show again, like I say, on that. Uh, speaking of little Al, we'll hear a lot from him as well, but that'll be later in the week. Thanks for listening tonight. Back at it again tomorrow night, 8 o'clock, Beyond the Bricks.